Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Sentimental Garbage, a podcast where we talk about the culture we love that society makes us feel ashamed of. I'm your host, Kelly Dunahue, and I bought a girdle to set me free. <laughs> Joining me is a woman who will never regret not going to Yale, Kate Young. Never regret it. Kate, I think that you will. I do actually regret not going to Yale. I really regret not going to Yale. But today we're talking about the Mona Lisa Smile. We are talking about the Mona Lisa Smile. The 2003 movie starring Julia Roberts that yes. I think might have been one of her first failures. Yeah. In terms of how the public thinks about her career. People are also very shitty about Runaway Bride. Yes. Which also deserves a re-looking at because I think it's really good. But it also presented itself in a really different way. Like it's very easier, true. It's easier to pan Runaway Bride because it's fun rom-com. And if yeah. fun rom-com doesn't go well, it's just fine. Yeah. This is serious movie that got panned. Yeah. Yeah. And that feels like a different failure. It's such a different kind of failure because like, yeah, you look at something like Runaway Bride and you're like, who can blame the starlet for capitalizing exactly. on her Richard Gere connection? Exactly. <laughs> going, Pretty woman went well. What yeah. else could we do 10 years down yeah. the line? Yeah. Um, but then this is like, you know, she's, Julia Roberts is this sort of serious America sweetheart. Yes. And she's making this movie about feminism in the 1950s and everyone hates it. Yes. Hates it. Hates it. Wellesley hates it. Critics hate it. Yeah. All the women. Like, just everyone hates it. And we love it. We love it! <laughs> we love it! And also, I read loads of sort of offhand, like, reviews of it, either on Amazon or on, like, Google Play. Yeah. Of people who it's their favourite film, taste, just yeah. really going... I hate that everybody hates this. It is really... I call it... It's sort of got 30-something percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. And on... YouTube or Google Play, it's got like 4.8 stars because everybody who's watching it, it's their favourite thing. Because of course. That's so interesting because the people who are watching it on YouTube or Google Play, because those are new streaming devices, necessarily, yes. they're like people who are like, you know what, when I was 14, when I saw I was this 14, movie. Exactly that. I'm going to go back to a time when there was this story about loads of women at yeah. university together. Yeah. And like, what, before we get into in depth, what do you love about it so much? I love... I love my initial experience of watching it, which was seeing it with my mum and my sister. Mm-hmm. A very nice film to watch with my mum and my sister. Yeah. A nice film about women that privileged a conversation about women's education and women who wanted to do interesting things with their lives. I loved seeing that many women on screen together doing fun stuff. I have always loved films set at schools or at colleges. Yeah. And particularly as somebody who went to Catholic girls' school, film set in single sex like girls environments where you watch what happens when you take the men out of the narrative and just have all of these women together bumping up against each other or wanting different things and how that looks yes and it is a film that I love and and sort of fits with a number of others that I loved at the same time that were set in similar sort of environments yeah and I think as well the the fact that men don't feature in the book, in the book, sorry, I'm used to this <laughs> being used just to a book, book podcast. podcast. 
And the fact that men don't feature all that much in the film. Obviously, yeah. there's the um, the Dominic West love story, mm-hmm. which I mm-hmm. think could be completely edited out. But genuinely, could not care less about that story. Could line. not care. Like he's very beautiful. Sure. And like would bang, but um, yeah, don't care at all. Um, Couldn't care less. What's so interesting about it now is that because there's very few proper male characters that yes. aren't just sort of husbands and boyfriends that chime in and out. Um, it's about women policing each other. Absolutely. You know, and you you would and how we all want to think that these all female spaces would be very idealistic and iconoclastic, and we would challenge yep. each other and push each other and celebrate each other. How more than often, and more often than not, that is not the case. No, because and it's not my experience of it. No. <laughs> Like there are some like amazing friendships in this Absolutely. movie, but it's most a lot of it is just like torture. Like yeah. some of the bits that like with between Kristen Dunst's character uh, Betty and Jennifer Goodwin's character Connie, it's like the Stanford Prison Experiment. It's, it's sadistic, horrible, horrible stuff, and just so, so cruel, so insidious, so constant that she is just there twisting a knife in over and yeah. over, and. Yeah, that's kind of my experience of, like, I, you know, made a lot of nice friends at school, but my experience of being in a girls' school was just, there is a way that you should be, and if you're not that way, if you don't conform to the the way that we expect a teenage girl to look and behave and do things, you're going to have the knife twisted in over and over. And I think it's so interesting to me because, um, this, obviously this movie was hugely critically panned, (laughs) And one of the things that it was panned for was the script. Lots of people yes. were like, the the performance here are admirable. Clearly these women are like working at the top of their game, but the script is shit. Yeah. And in some cases, that's very true. Uh, absolutely that. Uh, totally that. And I, I love the performances. I love the characters. I think that some of them make questionable decisions. There's bits of plot that I don't care about. Yeah. It's mostly the stuff with men that I'm like, yeah, don't care about Dominic West, don't care about this. Also, it's very narrow-minded in how it represents narrow-minded people. Yes. Like, it's not, like... So, Betty's mother, uh, uh, is, who's yeah. the source of her trauma, yeah. is the most up to 11 character. <laughs> There's a bit where she's saying to Betty, oh, I want your husband to read a poem at the wedding. Yeah. And Christian Dunn's character is like, no. No. And then he she doesn't al- want to do that. She almost throws her down a stair. She literally, like, grabs her arm, pinches her daughter, leads her over to the stairs. So it's like, this will happen. Like, over the well, banister. Just terrifying woman. No nuance. No, no like, nuance. No, no sort of underlying reason why she's that except that her mother probably was too yeah but i'm adding stuff to that character that doesn't exist yeah, she's such a page. simple villain character yeah and so it's stuff like that where i like i agree with critics i'm like yeah, yeah there's places For where sure. the script needs finesse and it feels like you needed to come back to that scene that For was a sure. placeholder that you needed to finesse um but there's also things about the script that i think is remarkably subtle and nuanced yep like the fact that this entire movie happens in 1953, which is the height of McCarthyism, the height of sort of persecution and yep. the Red Scare. And it never refers specifically to the political situation, but it refers to the atmosphere around it in a way that feels very true. Yes. Like in one of the early scenes, it's um, Amanda Anderson, who is the handing out yep. birth control. And Betty writes this op-ed for the paper. Yep. Um, and gets her fired, which is like a proper villainous thing proper to do. Proper villainous thing for a student to write in the student newspaper yeah. about a woman on campus who is handing out contraception and for the school board, for her not even to be able to argue it, for the, her to be called into a meeting, not to explain her actions, but literally yeah. just to be fired because the school board have decided this, it's indefensible. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's illegal as well yeah. in the state of Massachusetts, yes. we're told. Um, but it's also this thing where, in that scene where Amanda is being fired and she's packing up her room at this boarding house, she says, that, you know, five years ago they would have slapped, they my, would have wrist, slapped my wrist. But this, but yep. now there's a committee for the protection of everything. Yes. And that's the only reference that you get. And you also get all these references to, like, subversiveness. Yes. But never an on-the-nose, that that Senator McCarthy sure is making problems, right, which exactly. in a lesser movie you would have you would have, It would have been much more overt. And there's a lot of conversation about Europe and sort of yeah. Catherine going to Europe or whether she has these sort of European ideals rather than nice, solid American ideals. Yeah, yeah. There's loads of... And, like, the way that these girls use the word subversive mm. oddly reminded me of the way we might use the word problematic today. Yeah. In that it's a word that has a specter and not a meaning. Yeah. You know? It's yeah, like, absolutely. It's like a that. shadow I'm going to cast over you and it's impossible for you to refute it. Yes, there's no has clarity. No I'm not actually accusing you of anything. Yeah. I'm just casting a question and going, hmm. Yeah. Danger. Interesting. Yeah. Dangerous here. So, uh, Mona Lisa Smile is a 2003 film starring Julia Roberts, Kirsten Dunst, Julia Stiles, and many, many more hot, talented women that tells the story of Catherine Watson, a liberal arts history teacher from California who begins teaching at Wesley's... Wellesley, very hard word to well, say. Very me. hard word. Wellesley, Wellesley. Women's College. <laughs> Over the course of the film, Catherine's unconventional teaching methods allows her students to question not just the value of art, but the constraints of their own lives. Um, and to go back to that sort of like critical consensus thing, another point that gets brought up, I read a lot of reviews in preparation yeah. for this. Some of them I thought were incredibly sexist. Yes. And even, and written by women, written by Bettys. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> women who seem to be working against their own best interests Absolutely. in order to fit into a patriarchal worldview. Um, which is like, oh, this is just like a, an excuse for a slumber party. Was the It's that, isn't it? Yeah. That sort of, this doesn't mean enough. This yeah. is just, you know, a, just a group of girls in a film yeah. and we're not saying enough about this. I read one that, were, that sort of said that... Um, by setting the film in 1953, they avoid having a conversation about what feminism means now. Right. Which seems such an extraordinary comment to make when you're like, period films get made all the time. Yeah. And it's totally valid to set this film in 1953 and have the conversation. Like, there's I, there's a reason that they made, the, that the writers and director made this film, and it's because, it is simply because Hillary Clinton went to Wellesley. Yeah, and a bunch yeah. of men in a room making films were like, you know, what would be interesting is looking at this school that Hillary Clinton went to. Yeah, but Hillary went in the sixties, by the time which at which time you had contraception, the pill had been legalized in nineteen sixty. Yeah, and you also had this sort of a slightly more revolutionary reaction to you know sort of a group who were a bit more revolutionary. The start of that sort of feminist movement. Yeah. 10 years after you had the time in the 50s where there was an expectation that you would have children and repopulate because mm -hmm. so many men had been lost during the war mm -hmm. and so many, you know, so many young people were not around anymore and so many women didn't have that opportunity. So if you did have that opportunity, you surely should be having yeah. children and continuing this, this sort of reaction against the 40s where women could work and women could do things because all the men were missing to then have the 50s where the men come back and everybody goes, okay, I'm now very domestic. I'm going to look yeah. after my children. The national effort is to make sure there's a big fat 
baby yeah. boom generation. Totally. So for a group of men to have gone, Hillary Clinton was there in the 60s. We're going to set it in 53 when all of these things matter. And we're going to have conversations around why, around all the conversations that women have once they have to consider career versus children versus whatever other opportunities they might have. Yeah. That is still a conversation lots of people are having now. It's still a conversation I have with a lot of my friends now. Yeah. And reading a review that says they set it in here so they don't have to have the conversation about what feminism means now seems to me such a a missed point you know that is part of the conversation the fact that we are still having those conversations is part of the conversation yeah yeah. that is still key that's so important but it's also i feel like with movies like this it's a damned if you do and damned if you don't experience where um if you try and address huge issues like feminism and uh sexism and all this all the stuff that you just outlined you're you're blamed if you make it too simplistic. Yep. Um, and then, but then if you overcomplicate it by, you know, bringing in more shades or more arguments or more whatever, yep. you're charged with being an issues movie. Yep. And instead, what you get when you try to do both those things, which is what this movie sort of is trying to do, you're like, oh, this is like a milk toast kind of like very placid, not very revolutionary, dull movie. Well, yeah. I, I just think it's... It's, you know, this classic thing of the revolutionary teacher comes in and changes everyone's worldview. Yeah. And that is such a trope. And it's, you know, Dead Poets... It was called the Female Dead Poets Society. Society. Yeah. I think this is way better than Dead Poets Society. I like it much better than Dead Poets <laughs> Society. But this is about women, so I'm... Yeah, yeah, so of course I'm like predisposed to enjoy this. Yeah. Um, and like, there is this argument about it. Like, okay, this revolutionary teacher actually doesn't do anything very revolutionary. She really doesn't. She doesn't. Like, so revolutionary would be challenging the fact that, like, these aren't the smartest women in America. These are the smartest women who are able to get in that room. Absolutely. You not. know? Yeah. This is like, this is a revolutionary would have been challenging the entirely white yeah. college. Revolutionary would have been including female artists on the yes. curriculum, which yes. she doesn't do which she either. doesn't do. She's talking about all men. Yeah, exactly yeah. that. But I think... If you see the movie as being, this is supposed to be a revolutionary teacher and she's not doing anything revolutionary, it does fail. Yeah. Um, but if you see, like, there's this great scene where the unveiling of the Jackson Pollock. Yeah. Which is so corny. So corny. But also works. But so works. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be there in that room yeah, when the, like, wood it. hits the ground, the oh. big casing hits. Yeah. And, like, I think I've just always wanted to be. Julie Roberts going up to the art guy and being like, thanks, I mean, like, you're, thanks a you're a pal. <laughs> <laughs> just being a woman that for yeah. some reason knows, knows a guy, that guy. who ships Pollock yeah. painting. Absolutely that. Oh, you're but just she... in time. We're about to unveil it. <laughs> it's perfect. You're a pal. <laughs> um, the, the, she, you know, she unveils it and she says, you know, you're, you're not being judged on it. You're not being graded on it. You are only being asked to consider it. Yes. And I think what the movie is about and like what it, it's the kind of the cumulative effect of the movie is she's not asking people to revolutionize the system or throw off shackles or whatever. She's asking people to reconsider what they've been given. Yeah. And like that scene at the beginning of the movie, which looking back on it now, I was like, this is a kind of a mental scene <laughs> when she's in the lecture hall for the first time. And they're like, oh, watch out for those seniors. They're going to fuck gonna, you up. Yeah, absolutely that. <laughs> and then it's like, she's like really dazzled because like, oh, they know all the curriculum and they can yeah. name all Peasant the Peasant couple plowing. <laughs> Just every picture. We know the year. We know what yeah. it's called. Like, 
also that that whole concept of her being a revolutionary teacher she was going to need to be because they already knew everything on the grid yeah they They're, knew everything she wasn't going to teach them anything anyway so but the fact that anything she's... she brought in was going to be revolutionary yeah. exactly anything yeah and and the fact that she's so rattled that they know things oh my god she's like like literally her glass is shaking yeah. and she's having a wine that like oh my god they know things already they know what things are called <laughs> I'm really going to have to shake things up around yep. here. They know what things are called. <laughs> um, but then I realized, I was like, this is kind of a silly scene. And that was the part where, because I haven't seen this movie in like 10 years. Yes. I was like, oh, is it not as good as I thought it was? And then the more I watch it, I was like, oh, it's she's not upset that they know the syllabus. She's upset because they have faith in it. Yeah. That the idea is like, they these this entire class of women ha- believe that the thing they've been handed is the wing that works. Yeah. They know all the answers. They've yeah. got them all. They have the rules. In their heads. Yeah. And it doesn't, you know, they, they have all the information they're going to need to pass that exam. To pass, inevitably, whatever exam they're going to be given, they've already got yeah. the answers. And that is true of life. And that is true of that class specifically. Is yeah. we know all the information, but we haven't questioned it. We haven't wondered why yeah. this is what we learn. And why, why art is the way that it is. And why we study these painters and not others or whatever. Yeah, and and the reason it sort of shakes her is that like, oh, I thought I was coming, you know, and gonna be with the smartest women in America, yeah. and and they are smart, but they are also so docile. They are, and so many of them are there because that's what you do in yeah. those couple of years before you get married. It's not just the sort of the four core women that we spend the most time with. It's everything throughout the school. It's the sort of ritual where the woman gets thrown into the lake with her garland of flowers on because she's praying for her wedding to find out who she's going to marry and all of the other women are pushing prams because they're praying for their children. You know, these women who are here in their early 20s are here literally as a stopgap before they move into their husbands' homes. Yeah. And that whole thing of like, I thought that was so well done with the... The whole thing with ritual in the movie and tradition yeah. where when she enters the college, there's this whole thing where it's like, oh, who knocks on the door of knowledge? <laughs> and it's really... I am every woman. <laughs> <laughs> Julia Stiles, performance of a lifetime. <laughs> I mean, I am, I have to say here, performance of Julia Stiles' lifetime is 100% 10 things I hate about you. But yeah, still, yeah. this is great. great. She's got great hair. She's got great hair. It's like a helmet. Yeah. So beautiful. <laughs> Such a great little, you know, one that she gets blown out every week. Oh, so good. But then it's like that thing of, you know, they have this, these rituals that initially Catherine finds very charming because she's like, oh, yes. this is silly, but also it's nice. And then cut to the next ritual scene, which is them doing this. Them doing the Chasing weird, the wheel. Chasing the wheel run. Yeah. The wheel for my husband run. Yeah. Sleep with these flowers under your pillow tonight and you'll dream of your husband. Yeah. And and it's and simultaneously and it's not very subtle but it is very effective where it's like the simultaneous scene while this is going on is she learns two pieces of information which is one that uh, Betty has written this op-ed about yes. Amanda and is getting her fired for providing contraception and then and two that Dominic West character the Italian professor is fucking Giselle <laughs> yeah and exactly yeah Maggie Gyllenhaal Maggie Gyllenhaal's character and it's like. Oh, we're obsessed with reproduction and yep. we're obsessed with affection and male love, but only in such rigid circumstances. And if yes. anything is outside these circumstances, it's a problem. Yes. And here's the problems that we're pointing out. Yeah. 
it really affected me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to talk a bit about Maggie Gyllenhaal? And, yes, and I do want to talk about Maggie Gyllenhaal journey. because I think that I think that there is very much something that I remember in 2003 was feeling like I couldn't talk about the fact that I enjoyed this movie. Yeah. Because <laughs> it was not cool yeah. to have liked I couldn't movie. talk about it in my own home. My yeah. sister was like, mocked it so badly. I mean, bless, my sister is younger, so I get to tell yeah. her what's cool. <laughs> what so, a privilege. Yes, such a privilege. Such a privilege to just be like, yeah. no, we like this film. This is good. Uh, but I think that there was a big reaction against it from critics and things like that and I read I remember reading at the time and then I looked for it when we were doing this this podcast um this interview with Maggie Gyllenhaal that was in the Guardian in Mm -hmm. 2004 and the person who was interviewing her who is a man said leaving sort of leaving aside her character for a moment because she talks quite warmly about Giselle as a character who we will come on to obviously because she's amazing um did she like the finished film and the sort of the response that Maggie Gyllenhaal says, obviously this is him writing it, but she thinks about this for a moment, perhaps wondering whether to be totally honest or diplomatic. In the end, she opts for both options. I watched it with my mother, who's a screenwriter and is very smart, and we were moved by it. It's a movie movie, though, and it's not challenging anything, which is hard for me. I really think it's a time in my country and in yours where it's important to make movies that are transgressive and provocative in a way. And this one is not. Part of me thinks it's okay to make movies that aren't, but more and more, I think it isn't. And that's her sort of response to this film that she spent however many months filming and then has been traveling around and promoting as part of this sort of team of young women who are all in this film together. And I find that, A, I I disagree with it on multiple levels, but I also find that sort of desperately sad that this is the sort of thing that you're expected that he that question is definitely asked with an air of did you like the finished film though yeah like what other right we're both intellectual we're both intellectual like what other response are you supposed to have in that situation of course she has to say oh actually it's quite it's quite hollywood and i've been doing a lot of independent films for a long time now and i just did secretary before this and I guess I'm not really allowed to like this. And maybe she really genuinely doesn't. Yeah. But that also feels like the only answer she's allowed to have. If she's going to remain the cool indie one of the, oh, the what, clique. What annoys me the most? I love Maggie Gyllenhaal. And I think she is one of the best things in yep. this movie. She was the girlfriend in Batman Begins. I mean, I was like, about, <laughs> that's exactly what I thought of. Like, she was really the girlfriend. The girlfriend. And I remember seeing that movie and being like, can't wait to see my girl Maggie Gyllenhaal. And Gyllenhaal. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, this? Really? This thing. Like, but yeah. no one's asking her to apologise for that. No, nobody gets her in a room and asks her to apologise for The Dark Knight. Because of course yeah. not. Oh, with The Dark Knight? Yeah, I think Katie, Katie Holmes was Batman McGinn. Yeah, okay. and they, yes. Yeah, and they just replaced her with They just replaced her with Maggie Gyllenhaal. But yeah, yeah. she's never going to be asked to apologise for that. In which she is... Sure, there's there's things about that film that we're not here to talk about The Dark Knight, but I yeah. have lots of feelings about Christopher Nolan films that are mainly like, yeah, whatever. Yeah, I don't care for them. I either. don't care for them. <laughs> but um, but generally, she's never going to be asked to apologise for that. She's never going to be in an interview with somebody yeah. in a room on her own at 25, being asked to defend this movie centred around women. Yeah, because there's the implication that if you're making a movie about women, it has to hold up the yep. gender yep. and prove yep. something. Yeah. It's it's the whole thing of I remember a few years ago when um the new Chinese Angels reboot came out. Yeah. I saw this whole thing on Twitter being like, 
ladies get to the cinema and yes. see Charlie's Angels regardless of whether or not it's good or not otherwise because... we won't get this thing again yeah it's such a heavy it vibe is. it is it really is and the other thing that I think so my first sort of response to the Maggie Gyllenhaal comment is sadness that that's the situation she's put in my second one is I want to talk about the fact that I don't agree with that, that I think this film is about something. I don't think it's particularly transgressive, but I think it's definitely about something. I think it says something. But the third thing is, I think it's fine to make stuff that doesn't. Yeah. And I I think my privilege as like a white middle-class woman is that I see myself on screen all the time. Mm -hmm. So I get to see loads of films where... uh, some of them mean something Mm -hmm. and want to say something either about feminism or sexism or any other sort of isms or just ageism or whatever mm-hmm. classism the experience of of being who we are and in our generation I get to see myself represented all the time and sometimes it means something and often it doesn't <laughs> and it's great and it's fine to go along and watch any sort of film like actiony films rom-commy films like any sort of film where it doesn't have to mean an enormous amount. It just gets to be a fun, entertaining piece of cinema. I also come to this, though, as a white, middle-class lesbian woman mm-hmm. who doesn't get to see myself on screen that often. Mm-hmm. Because when I do see myself on screen, it is white lesbians in the 19th century having quite tragic times. Mm-hmm. There is a reason. It is an SNL sketch. It <laughs> I love SNL trope. sketch! It's so good! Because it's true. Because, you know, yeah. that is... That story is told over and over and over. Is this tragic love that you cannot have because that is not the way that society is set up. And there have been so many of those films made in the past decade. I will watch every single one of them. But it is, is, you know, a thing that that is the type of film that we get. We got last Christmas a gay Christmas Mm rom-com in Happiest Season. Yes. And we got to watch Kristen Stewart hold a whiskey and flirt with Aubrey Plaza and that's great I will watch that any day of the week but that film as a rom-com was also about being outed about the threat of your family disowning you Mm -hmm. and not supporting you and disbelieving or arguing your sexuality I kind of I will go and see that film of course I will and I will watch it again this Christmas because I love to see it (laughs) but I kind of want a film where two women can just flirt and have a good time and it not mean anything. And somebody makes a bit of a problem or a bit of a, you know, there's a bit of an issue arises, stuff gets blown out of proportion and then things get resolved and it's fine. Yeah. I want to see those films. Like, I don't think cinema has to mean anything. And, you know, and I like it when it doesn't. I agree with you. Yeah. I like I, it when it gets not, to, you know, when it doesn't have to be some yeah. enormous meaningful experiment. But also there's this thing of like this is a trope. The these sort of the the education inspiring person movie yes. is a trope. It happened with Dead Poets Society. Yep. It happened with Good Will Hunting. Yes. Which are two movies people love. Yes. And like critically lauded. Yeah. Not just people. Best original screenplay. Yep. Not just the people stuff. on YouTube or Google Play. Yeah. But the and people they're, everywhere. They're movies about men being educated. Yes. Yeah. By other men. Yeah. And nobody 
nobody forces a theme on it. Like even even something like Goodwill Hunting, nobody talks about that movie in terms of how class is represented. And it's disappointing that we see working class men represented. Yeah. Being violent. Nobody has that nobody. conversation because everyone's expected to just instantly relate. Yeah. And it's the magic of storytelling. Yeah. But when it's women set in a period that are reflecting on the period they're in, yep. it's like, oh, you're trying to make a feminist movie and here's where you failed. Here's where you failed. Here's yeah. why your feminism is bad. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. But I also like it is a very seductive movie if you're a white lady as well. Oh yeah, because it's really easy to be like it's very cozy. It looks very great, cozy. and you're like beautiful. Mm, I'm wronged. <laughs> I love yes. being so wrong. Yeah, you know, and there's really no discussion over like their immense privilege or the women not in that room. Yeah, and, and as a as a it's very white feminism to it's be very like super white feminism. There's I think two students who walk past the camera at some point who are not white. Oh, really? And none of them are in the art class. Like, none of them are in the class that we spend all the time with. They are just some girls at Wellesley who happen not to be white. Yeah. And we spend no time with a single one of them. Like, not a single person who's not white has a line. Tell me about your favourite scenes, favourite characters, favourite arcs, because there's so much. It feels like a TV show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so many characters. I think that the... I had kind of forgotten because I haven't really watched it since I think I probably watched it when I was at university, but not really since then. So maybe like Mm -hmm. 15 years since I properly sat down and gone, I'm going to focus on this. And I had forgotten that the story wasn't entirely centered around the girls who were my age. So the the sort Mm. of the girls who who are the students and now coming back to it as a woman who is 34 I suspect I am perhaps closer in age to some of the teachers (laughs) I am now older than Catherine Watson who is just 30 and unmarried she's 30 I guess she never wanted to have kids never wanted to have kids it's over she's 30 oh god oh god oh god but I I was absolutely taken with these three teachers who live together Yes. Who are Catherine Watson, so Julia Roberts, uh, Amanda Armstrong, who is our lesbian, mm-hmm. uh, who gives out the contraception at school yeah. and is fired quite early on. And then Nancy, who is Marsha Gay Harden, who is doing so much work in this film. So much quiet, tragic work. So who do you want to start with? So I want to start with her. Okay. Because it's her house. It is. <laughs> and that's polite. <laughs> that's polite. I just, when I was watching it last night, I was like, this is the definition of a Best Supporting Actress oh my nominee. God. It's so good. The thing about a Best Supporting Actress nominee is that it always has to be this sort of quirky, outsized yep. character, but who has this, like, mill of tragedy yes. within. She, everything she says is great. Yeah. Don't you just love chintz? Her <laughs> <laughs> showing her around the house and pointing at the pillow and how it matches the wall. Yeah. Lifting up the pillow cushions being like, see? Matches. Mm, yes. Mm, look at my beautiful house. But this deep, so the, the deep tragedy of this house is that Nancy has, I wrote, I wrote down what she says, the way she sort of introduces her story is that she hears that Catherine Watson, Julie Roberts is in this long distance relationship and mm-hmm. says, long distance torture. I know when Lenny left for the South Pacific, it nearly broke my heart. We wrote every day until, and then sort of trails off yeah. and goes, he was a great man. It was a hundred years ago. I'm babbling. And you go, A, it wasn't a hundred years ago. Yeah. It's probably sort of eight years ago, if yeah. we're talking him going off in the Second World War. And that is 
deep tragedy. Like, whatever happens to Lenny, and we find out later, he's not dead. He is married with kids somewhere else. Oh, that whole Just scene so of the wedding. so awful. Her Just... drinking Manhattans and saying that the bartender looks like Lenny and then saying yeah. he can't shine his shoes. And... Oh, it's... Oh, and it also made me think, which I'm, supposed to, I'm sure it was supposed to make me think, yeah. of like how many drunk women there were propping oh up bars God. talking to bartenders being like you look like it's just yeah. like because as you said at the beginning of the podcast like the reason there was such an emphasis on reproduction and yeah. domestic life is because so many women had lost yeah their husbands and our, their boyfriends their lovers or whatever and the same happened in the first world war yeah and there was this whole thing about like lost women and yeah. what they were going to do and stuff and generations of these women who all lived alone who had this life where if you weren't married by 30, there was probably something wrong. Yeah. And there probably weren't enough men to go around. And so maybe it wasn't going to happen for you. And it's such a self-fulfilling prophecy because yes. if, if, if um, you are unmarried and society makes you feel wrong or a mutant, you're going to yep. become a wronged mutant. And she's become a wronged mutant. Like, it's exactly what she's become. She's completely, she's so into, like, there's this heartbreaking scene towards the end where Catherine's trying to celebrate the fact that she's been asked to return yeah. to Wellesley. And she's trying to push her into going out. And there's not that much between them age-wise. No. But she's, but like mentally, it's just Nancy's a, a so much older. Yeah. And she's trying to push her and she's like watching, got a glass of champagne and watching the prices right or yeah. something. And, and she's like, come on, let's get gussied up. And then she says it's firm. No, no. I don't want to go. Yeah. Stop. Yeah. It's really hard. It's really hard. And it's really hard because the end of this film for her is that the same thing will happen next year. Two new women who are teachers at this yeah. school are going to move into her house and she might have this sort of quite surface friendship with them where they hang around, but only that friendship's only going to exist when they're all in the house yeah. together. I don't think she's going to change. No. She is going she's to have She's one of these characters who remains of, unchanged. Exactly. She's going to have decades of teaching these girls deportment and, yeah. you know, sort of what else is it called? Etiquette. Etiquette. Yeah. Um, etiquette and deportment until they decide that that's not a class that they have anymore. Yeah. And then she's going to be useless even at the school. Oh, no! She's such a tragic character. And, yeah, and, and the sort of the implicit tragedy of like the woman who teaches these young oh girls about how to be a good wife and she never was she one. She never was one. Yeah, so it's all these like theoretical situations yep. where she's like, that scene in the etiquette class. Oh my God, where she's like, Jones and Smith have been invited to your house for yeah. dinner. What do you do? What do you do? You've made dinner for the boss and his wife and your husband and you. And now Jones and Smith and their wives have been invited. How do you stretch dinner for four to feed eight? And this is the biggest drama you could possibly be faced with. And she does say to all these girls in that moment, she's kind of already recognizing where the future of this is going because she mm. says, you might be here for an easy A, yeah. you know, because you know that this class is going to be... But your husband's grade your matters husband's most of all. Your husband's grade matters most of all. Oh, ah. The grade that matters most is the one he gives you. Ah. <laughs> it's so... Oh. horrifying that whole thing and I think she plays it so well because she's so over the top but in a way that feels utterly convincing that she so would have created convincing. this over the top persona to hide all of the, the tragedy yeah. of it and that when she drinks when she goes out at that wedding and has enough Manhattans that is the only crack that we see in it that sort of all of this stuff leeches out oh god and it's like but the thing is, it's like it's so it is quite layered because she's 
it seems so uptight and so um, really one of these upholders of the society that she's in. But then, you know, she, she talks about Amanda and her partner having died. Yeah. And like, you know, her companion. Her companion like, died oh, in since, May. Since her companion died in May. And she yeah. goes, you know, you know companion. companion. <laughs> but it's like, it's, so, it's, it's the whole thing about this entire society. And I think the society we still fucking live Absolutely. in. Absolutely. It's like, when things happen that are subversive or against the grain, as long yeah. as no one's seeing them, it's fine. It's fine. It's like the whole thing with the professor sleeping with the students. Yes. Or like the contraception's only a problem once people start being, it starts being published. Right, you know? exactly. The contraception's illegal. It's being handed out at the school. It is illegal. But it's only yeah. a problem once it's front page and once the governors see it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it is this sort of, it's this world we're still living in. Yeah. Where like, we're still in this thing of like, in this, it's so corny to say, the post Me Too generation, mm, yes. as I'm sure will always be known as yes. historically. Yes. Of like, you know, women's decision, women's decisions to write about the things they go through or to share the things they go through become almost as criticized as the men who perpetrated the thing. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like Absolutely. there's two sins at work. Yes. Abuse and talking about and it. And talking about it. Yeah. yeah. And making it public and putting yourself in, you know, in that conversation. Yeah. And that's still a thing. Yep. And it's relevant and always relevant. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So I think that that house is fascinating. We don't get nearly enough of Amanda before she's fired. I know. But the tragedy of her, of like her companion that she's had for decades. Yeah. The biology teacher at school who died last May, that is deeply tragic that she can't, she wouldn't have been able to mourn her in the same way that she would a husband. She won't have the same care and concern and protection offered to her as she would have had she lost a husband after decades of being yeah. together. Oh, the status. Yeah. You know? Absolutely that. And this the thing where, what's the name of the, the companion who dies? I feel like Rebecca. Yeah, something. What is her name? Yeah. We, we don't meet her, so it Rebecca. Let's say Rebecca. <laughs> She's like, oh, when Rebecca, <laughs> when Rebecca died, I should have left. There was nothing left yes. to love. Yes. It really got me. It really got me. And the she, dignity. Yeah, because she leaves very quickly in the narrative, but yeah. she has a a big weight. And it's not just because Juliet Stevenson's amazing, but it yeah. is... It, it is Juliet Stevenson, isn't yeah. it? It's yeah, so yeah. weird. It was like... Oh, yeah. I had the whole... Is it? Yeah. The whole time. Right? Yeah. Wow, yeah. she can do anything. She can absolutely do anything. I remember thinking that in 2003, having seen and loved Bend It Like Beckham a couple of years before and being like, she's just a chameleon. She can do it she all. Is. English, English, lesbian, lesbian whatever. Um, Dignified lesbian. So that house I find utterly fascinating. Mm-hmm. And I've, I love all of them. And re-watching it, I think I loved them much more than I did when I was 16 yeah. and yeah. watching this for the first time. Um, but then there are the girls at school who are... Wonderful. They're wonderful. And what's great about this movie as well is that it kind of gives you a chance to believe you're all the characters. Absolutely. Like, you get to live in Julia Roberts' mindset, yep. but you also get to live in Connie's and in Betty's Absolutely and everything. That. And like, I feel like it doesn't get enough credit for like, it really does give a scope of characters and it does feel like a proper ensemble cast. It really does. Hard to it, do. it also feels like that the four girls who are, who are friends, I don't think it feels incongruous that they're friends. Mm. even though they are all quite different and represent very different things. Yeah. They have quite a believable school or college friendship yeah. where you are kind of thrust together. At some point you will have 
all found each other. Yeah. You'll have found a commonality or a common point. There yeah. are friendships that are stronger between some of them than others. There's frictions that exist between some that don't yeah. exist between others. And although there are four of them, they exist very much not necessarily as types. They all feel, even though they're quite different, they all feel very believable. They as do. These girls. It, it feels as very, whenever you spend time with them, that they're just people who happen to share a floor. Yeah. You know, and that's, and there's sort of kind of an in and out kind of thing going on. Exactly. So they are Betty, who's played by Kirsten Dunst, Joan, who's played by um, Julia, Julia Stiles. Stiles. And they're the two sort of um, queen bees, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the school queen bees. So yeah. Betty, I think, not only because she's friends with Joan and they've got this thing, but because her mum is on the board. Yeah. So she has this sort of status at the school that another yeah. student will never have because yeah, and her that her, that that her word matters exactly. and her opinion matters and she lords this over people. Yes. Not graciously. Not graciously ever. <laughs> no, she is awful. Awful. She, I, I just, I think she's the heart of the whole movie. She absolutely is. Because she's a sadist. Yeah. She's a fucking sadist. Yeah. She has, we were texting about this yesterday. Yeah. She has a redemption arc yeah. that is absolutely extraordinary. Yeah. The fact that this girl who is presented as a complete villain, who you are initially so not on the side of. Yeah. And so antagonistic to all the characters you sort of feel warmly towards. Yeah ends up being the one that I cry about at the end. The fact that you end up rooting for Betty... It is absolutely Given the fact she got a woman fired yeah. in the first 20 yeah. minutes. <laughs> absolutely. And says awful, awful things. Awful things. Awful things. Yeah. Is awful to her friends, is so miserable, and takes yeah. it out on everybody around her. Yeah. And ensures that they are as miserable as she is. But, like, it's so well written and so well performed. This thing of, like, everything she does, you understand. Yeah, absolutely. There's this rant I often come back to <laughs> in my life, which is, I hate the... I don't hate... I don't like the director, David Fincher, because I feel like he only wants to make movies about sickos. And every movie he makes, I pretty much call it David Fincher's Sickos. Yes. And I've ranted this to you before, but not to the audience. <laughs> It's a good rant. They deserve to But his whole thing is just like, check out this sicko. Yeah. He loves to hate women. Yeah. It's like Seven and Fight Club and Gone Girl and Girls Dragon Tattoo and to a certain extent Social Network. It's all the same story, which is, we don't know why this person is is a statistic mess, but they are. Yeah. So go figure. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. This person is sick and unexplainable and nothing like you, other men. Yes, which I think is key here, and that's and that's what annoys me the most yeah. about it. Because like when I watched uh, Girl with Dragon Tattoo recently, and it was like, oh, you're gonna make these sick like the the social worker who's a rapist yes. kind of thing, these outsized sick characters, so we can feel cozy about not being them. Yeah, but then you get a character like Betty, mm-hmm. written so well and played so well, where. Everything she does, you know exactly why she's doing it. Like, it's yep. like this whole thing of like, her best friend is Joan, and Joan has been admitted to Yale yes. grad school, and it's the thing that drives Betty over the edge. Yeah, not because she's jealous that her friend has something that she doesn't, but she's so 
angry that this horrible life that she has worked so hard to create, she might have to go through it alone. Yes. And her best friend might not have to suffer through it also. <laughs> her best friend might get to have another version. Yeah. And the best friend that is making Betty a wasn't question. told is possible. Yeah. You know, that suddenly Joan has kind of shown up with this other life with a husband that actually loves her. Joan seems happy at the end of the film. And the whole, yeah. the whole thing is that Joan is allowed to be happy with having chosen not to go to Yale and chosen to go be with yeah. her husband and, you know, but, have dinner but, on the table at six. <laughs> because if she wants to do that, that is also a valid choice. Feminism doesn't just exist to let us go to school. Yeah. It exists so that we can do whatever it is we want to do. And Joan wants to do that. So that scene where Betty is showing Joan around her new house and she folds back these wicker doors. <laughs> I want to show you a surprise. Oh my God. Folds back these doors and behind the doors is a dishwasher. No, wait, a, a, a washer, washer and dryer. And, dryer. and she's like, ta-da! <laughs> Best thing that Best. has ever happened. And, and it's this thing of like, you know that that's not actually what stimulates Betty yeah. at all. What stimulates Betty is being a cunt. Yeah, like, absolutely. And like speaking truth to power. What yes. she believes is to be speaking truth to power. Totally that. Which is like, you know completely cannibalizing any woman who steps yeah. out of line and which she learns throughout the film is not the point is that and, the point? and that's not actually speaking truth to power that is yeah. conforming to what we've been told to do yeah but yes you know what makes her happy is writing her column and eviscerating <laughs> women she thinks have not upheld the standard and she doesn't care about the washer and dryer but she's been told that she has to but she's got a thing that's hard and expensive yeah and she has it before her friends do yeah and that's enough that's enough but it isn't it's really not it turns out that's not enough when your husband hates is you. interested in you and hates you and is having an affair months after you were married yeah and doesn't sleep with you and doesn't come home and spends as much time as possible in elsewhere and you've been told by your mother you must stay in this marital house. No, you can't come back and sleep in your old room for a night yeah. because you're lonely and sad. Um, it's just devastating. So devastating. The fact that she's moved out of this school where she feels yeah. stimulated and interested yeah. to take on a life that makes her utterly miserable. The thing about, the thing about Betty's journalism mm-hmm. that I think is so important and, mm-hmm. and is another one of those things where like, yeah, that's a relevant conversation that we're still having today. Yes. Is that let me see if I can phrase this properly. Is that like we've got these broadsheet journalism that likes to take movements or grassroots organizations or people who are outspoken, whether it's like like the trans movement or like environmentalist activists who aren't behaving the way we want them to or whatever, and being like, This is us speaking truth to power. This is us quashing this dumb thing this is us getting rid like uh, being critical about this threat and it's like completely it's like this inward jab at progress because it's easier and feels the same as conquering or vanquishing something that is truly menacing which is the thing that controls you yeah you know yeah absolutely that it's like I always think about it. It's like, it's why TERFs exist. Yeah. It's why there are so many cis women who abuse trans women and the trans movement because they're like, I can't, there is no chance of me fighting the patriarchy. Yeah. Or the, the straight cis men who've developed these systems that right. I'm a slave to. Exactly that. And so I'm going to have to 
pick this fight. Pick this and fight. And this community because this is an attackable community. It's an attackable community, but because it feels threatening to me, yes. feels like a monster worth slaying. And yeah. that's the role that Catherine is doing. Yeah. Like, Catherine might as well be a trans lady <laughs> coming in. Yeah. She is to the, be in the, space. the dragon worth slaying. The, yeah. The person who is coming in and challenging what you see as your role and your place and all of this and instead of challenging the role and the place you challenge the person who comes in and shows you that it's not working and all their scenes together are the best scenes in the movie the best scenes in the movie all of the best interactions are between julia roberts and kirsten dunst because they're both wonderful they're so good and this whole whole like where it's whole thing where she comes in late and she's missing. If you fail me, classes. there will be consequences. If you fail me, there will, there be, will consequences. be consequences. She says, Don't disregard our traditions just because you're subversive. And then Julia sa- or Catherine says, Don't don't disrespect this class just because you're married. Don't disrespect me just because you're not. Come to class, do the work, or I'll fail you. If you fail me, there will be consequences. Are you threatening, threatening me? me? I'm educating you. <laughs> and then Catherine just goes, and she whacks her on the nose with a pencil (laughs) and the way Kirsten Dunn's face just scrunches she's just so good she's such a good face actress she really is there's another great face acting moment from her when her husband kisses her before he leaves oh my god he aims for the forehead forehead. but he gets the centre of her eyes it's quite awkward it's like bridge of her nose kind of like ugh and Tommy and Joan have been sort of canoodling on the sofa yeah. in a way that feels quite like oh guys find a fucking room um, find a like, I would be annoyed I would be if annoyed. I had a couple over for dinner <laughs> yeah. and they were like ain't she the greatest oh, ain't she the greatest I'm just gonna touch her face all the time it's yeah. like okay we get it you're in love we get it, um, we get but it. you know for the, your husband to then like sort of bump his face against the bridge of your nose yeah. as if that's an appropriate farewell oh but then like Debbie such an asshole in that scene as well she's oh, yeah. like we've got news um, yeah. And they're like, oh, pitter-patter, a little yeah. feet. Such a 50s conversation. Um, and, and then she kind of slightly cracks her smile. And she's like, no, no. he's been made junior partner. <laughs> and then he's like, Betty. And it's quite a raise. Quite and a raise. quite a raise. Yeah. It's just so everyone knows that woman who's so miserable. Yeah. And the only joy that she thinks she can get is by making other people jealous of her. Yes. Horrible life that yeah. no one wants. Is by demonstrating to everybody the fact that this is everything I've ever wanted. Yeah. And we are succeeding at this life at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. At the cost of my and sanity the cost and happiness. To her sanity and happiness. And, and the sanity and happiness of everyone around absolutely. me. Absolutely. She makes Connie utterly miserable. Connie. Poor sweet Connie. And the premise that you are asked to accept is that Jennifer Goodwin is unattractive and somebody nobody would want to have sex with. And it is Utterly incomprehensible to me that Hollywood yeah. has decided that she is the ugly decided best friend. Numerous times, numerous times, over so and many over. Films. So many films. He's just not that into He's you. He's just not that into you. Exactly. Yeah. I do feel like every film she does, she is in it because somebody has said we need like a unattractive, quite awkward girl who kind of incomprehensibly somebody might fancy. Yeah. Towards the end, like it's so. It's like she. <laughs> Yeah, she needs to be like mm, a size twelve. Yeah, and but also have like a big Disney face. That's yes. still a that still looks like a princess. Yeah, she still has like, these eyes, huge Beautiful brown eyes, eyes, like take up a yeah. whole face, 
And they're like, well, she, well yeah, she has to be convincingly fuckable. Like, someone has yeah, to Yeah, yeah. At, at some it's point so towards the end, weird. we have to decide that she kind of probably deserves yeah. a man being vaguely pushed in her direction. It's it is so... incomprehensible to me that that is who she has been cast as forever. And it really, I think people are talking a lot at the moment about, um, you know, the, the noughties and the absolutely insidious messages that yes. they sent. And I yes. do, I actually do think the noughties was one of the worst generations for women really since do. the 50s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with, like, through that Perez Hilton style of journalism. Exactly. And cameras that. being on phones yes. for the first time and it being, there being so many ways to depict women who were against the status quo. Yeah. Like, that whole And chasing photos scene. of, exactly, yeah. chasing photos of girls coming out of clubs and getting into cars and... yeah the amount of money you could get for a photo up someone's skirt like yeah feels like a different time it feels extraordinary that that and it was so it was so unforgiving yeah it was a much more unforgiving culture was... and i think like we have so many conversations about you know our own internalized you know misogyny and all this and like yeah. i i fucking wear the wool shirt and beat my own back about my own horrible thoughts all the time and then I have to cut myself some slack because I'm like look what you grew up in look what you marinated in yep when like Amy Winehouse went on Nevermind the Buzzcocks and was clearly having like really struggling and everyone made fun of her made fun of her yeah I just think that growing up and being at school so I was at secondary school 2000 to 2004 Mm-hmm. and then was at university from 2005 to 2008. Mm-hmm. And that eight years was a really tough time to be a yeah. young woman, like a teenage girl trying to figure yourself out. So t- There was just so many examples of kinds of women that you shouldn't be, yep. and they were everywhere and they were all the time. Yep. And that was so, it was so much about weight. It was the peak circle of shame years, Yes, which um, younger listeners won't even remember, but like lots of magazines, and I think Heat was the one that yeah. pioneered it, would have circles... Like red circles around problem areas of women yep. and it could be like bulge of the flesh it could be cellulite it could sometimes it could be literally the skin of a woman's armpit slightly folded yes. because her arm was doing right. something and people went and you know or like Julia Roberts going to a red carpet event yes hairy armpits, hairy armpits. Yeah. and the fact that that sort of that sold magazines and papers for the next six months yeah and we've already spoken about it on this podcast yeah. the series literally you, yes oh my yes. god amazing it's in our Murren O'Connell episode about red carpets. Everyone look it up. Fantastic. Um, but uh, yeah, I can't believe it. And like I think about Jessica Simpson in those high-waisted oh jeans. Oh my God, yeah. Looking beautiful, but also beautiful. me internalising that as the reason that one can never wear high-waisted jeans. But yeah, I think that that era, that time, the, when this film came yeah. out and when we were teenagers, yeah. was a particularly difficult time. And I can't believe Jennifer Goodwin was cast as but this it, it also sad. like talking about this you know this movie came out in 2003 it's talking about the 50s yeah it was a moment where people I just think the women hatred in the culture was really high really high I'm not saying there aren't problems with this movie because there are and I they feel like we've talked are. fairly about them yeah yeah like some of the script sucks like yeah. it's not really as radical as it should be no you know, and all I these think things. that part of that I want to see this movie written and directed by women yeah, and I would gladly see it remade. Yeah, it was written by men and directed by a man. And right. I want to see a version of this that is made by women. I'm not saying that women in 2003 suffered the same things that women's in the 1950s were no. going through. But I think in terms of an incredibly conservative worldview, a culture of increased surveillance and endless opportunities to pass judgment yep. that were rewarded in a nasty culture that 
liked that sort of thing. And really delicious, like sort of found it delicious to yeah. talk about women in a way that demonized them. Yeah. And it, like obviously and that still exists. Yeah. But I think there totally. is a sturdy, yeah, like defense of it now. Defen- there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a sturdy like rejection of that that exists yeah. in the culture. Like if there's a really sexist Daily Mail headline, yes, it will still exist. But the backlash will be instant. Yes. And pe- there will people be are talking a, a about sort of real yeah. fury of, as a reaction to it. Yeah. That I think if this film came out now and had the same reviews, we would all be on Twitter going, no, yeah. fuck that. That's, yeah. that's bullshit. That's sexist. That's misogynistic. That's what this is. Yeah. And I feel, I feel like people are able to sort of separate the legitimate criticism from the like, are you sure this isn't just because you resent having to hear about women's problems yeah. for two hours? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Yeah, and there's this, there's this thing in the movie that I don't know if it totally makes... I don't think the movie makes up its mind about it, mm. where people are like, oh, Catherine, you wanted to come and make a difference and show people a new way, but you just want to show people your way and you're actually yeah. an egotist and you're actually just want everything to be... You have no, you have no patience for anything outside of your worldview. Yeah. Do you think it really gets to the bottom of any of that? No, because I think it kind of believes that, but then it also questions it at the same time. I don't think it really yeah. gets to the the bottom of what she genuinely is. There She's kind of a do. blank canvas. She is a bit of a blank canvas, and I think that it is important that the the stories that we have in the end that I am interested in yeah. that the like the the people that I want to follow after the film finishes. I'm like Catherine can go to Europe and have fun. I don't yeah. really care. She's a bit of a blank canvas. She can have a nice time. Yeah. She's got a lovely smile. She's going to be Julia fine. Julia Roberts will be fine. Yeah. I want Giselle and Betty in Greenwich Village. Yes. In an apartment, post-university. At the beginning of the at beatnik. At the beginning of the beatnik era. Yeah. Like, I want Betty 
writing op-ed pieces in New York newspapers. Betty's going to go on and be Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Well, this is the thing. I think that Betty could be that. Betty could be... I just think that Betty has a real, like, Peggy from Mad Men vibe. Yeah. Like, that she will get to New York at that age, in that era, and she will have the same, like, slow revealing and peeling back of all those other types of living and ways of life. But it's so, like... I think there's a little bit of a Betty that lives in all of us. Yeah. In that, like, I recently, when I, I found a university essay I had written when I was 19. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the name of the essay, and I found, I found it in an old email address because, like, I went hunting into it to find some document or something. And um, it was an essay I had filed to my sociology professor in 2009. Right. And the name of the essay was, Is the Patriarchy Still a Governing Force in, mod- in Contemporary Ireland? Wow. And my argument was, no. And not only was it no, I'm so embarrassed by this, I can't believe I'm saying it. It's like, first of all, it was no. And second of all, if the patriarchy is a governing force in contemporary Ireland, there are worse systems wow. to use. And yeah. I compared it to like fascism and I compared it to sort of like communist China. And, so, and I like, it was, I was stupid and I was 19, but really? I like, I was using the intellectual rigor that I had been given to interrogate my own thought, which yes. was like, yeah, there are lots of systems yeah. and this is one of them and we're actually all doing fine, aren't yeah. we? Yeah, we're fine, right? Yeah, which I is, shouldn't be that worried about this. Yeah. And, and like, I was like, it, like, all systems are flawed. This one's the least flawed. Wow. And that was my genuine art. And I, reading yeah. it, I felt I, like I was like sweating bullets. I was like, am I secretly evil? <laughs> but, but I think I see that in 2009. I really... Yeah. Yeah. I can see having, you know, argued that. And I couldn't believe it. Yeah. That I was like this burgeoning like person who wanted to be a writer so desperately. Yeah, and like, yeah. I was funneling all of my energy into this. Yeah. Like... Why? It was such a Betty move. Yeah. But it is that Betty move where you're like, I, I'm i going to have to find a way in. Yeah. I have to exist inside this, so I'm going to make it I'm going to be the and... exception woman. Exactly. Who gets why women suck. Yeah. And so I'll charm you into allowing yeah. me in. I'm going to be cool girl. I'm going to be cool girl. But then the first thing I did when I moved to London was I applied for solely lads mags. Like yeah. nuts and zoo and FHM and all that because I wanted to so desperately be the girl who works on a man's yep. paper or a man's magazine, yeah. and it really it freaks me out now. <laughs> that is yeah, and I think like the last decade, and watching the world in the last decade and being part of the world in the last decade has obviously had an impact. Yeah, in a way that has made us go, oh, interesting. Yeah. But it also, even though I feel so much like shame around that. I also feel like, isn't that amazing how people can change? It is amazing how people can change, but it's also amazing how much of a product we are of our of environments, our environments yeah. and of, as somebody else who grew up in quite a conservative Catholic country, yeah, how much we can be a product of our environment that tells you to live in a certain way. Yeah. And, and that, and that why... provides you a couple of ways in which you can fit into that. And, and, and why these Catherine Watson characters, yeah. even though they don't do anything specifically radical, except ask you to consider a Jackson yep. Pollock painting. Because <laughs> she's really not, she's not up there at the top of the class being like, oh, She's women. really not. She has the one the lesson. One the scene. one scene. We have to talk about it. Yeah. The one scene where she wants to talk about, so she goes in. After Betty writes an op-ed Betty about her. After about her. And about her sort of. Subversion. Subversion of the way, the, the, 
the roles that we're supposed to play, the roles we're born to play. Yeah. And which I think is an amazing way to talk about it. The roles that we are born to play implies so much about acting and performative, the performative nature of those roles. The fact that the way Betty sees it is that I am, I have to perform in this. Mm. It is not that I get to live it. It is not mm. that it is at deep inside me. It is not that what I actually want to do. Yeah. It is the role I am born to play. To oh, play. That's to so, keep I, playing I, I in your life. I like, of that. What an extraordinary thing to think that you should be doing. Yeah. Why not like the life I was born to live? Why the role we were born to play? <sighs> and so... Fuck. I, yeah, right? Like what, what a thing to go through your life thinking. Yeah. Here I am performing this role. Yeah. And I'm only doing it because well if it looks like Because everyone around her this. performs. Exactly. And everybody about it is exactly. Yeah. Everybody, everybody around her. It's like that assumption that surely everybody else around her is miserable deep down as well, right? Mm-hmm. But we all just are playing this very well. Yeah. We're all miserable. We're all miserable. Right? Well, we're surely, all. Yeah. Because I am. Like, I definitely, you know, poor old Betty. Anyway, so she goes into the next class with a bunch of advertising instead Mm. of, you know, contemporary art, which is what they've been looking at. Yeah. So they've been looking at sort of modern art, contemporary art, ancient art, um, sort of visual art. And then she goes in with advertisements. And this is the bit that always ends up in trailers, always gets talked about, where she sort of talks about the girdle to set you free oh. which is the the print advertisement mm. uh, that she has shown and and Catherine Watson is standing up in front of the class asking what the women or what the people in a hundred years time are going to look back on in 1953 and think of that era because mm. of the works of advertising and the way that they are they are art like all of that is art mm. the way in which that speaks about the time. And that is so interesting. It's what we do. Yeah. And it's literally what we're doing in watching that film is oh, looking back and so questioning well all of that. It's, it's like, so well played. She's so furious. Because as well, she's been so, it's a withholding performance. Yeah. Most of it. Because she's just kind of a set of eyes in the head for most yeah, of the absolutely. thing. And she's like, oh, how about Gauguin? And blah, blah, yeah. Van Gogh, blah, blah. And then that thing when she comes in and there's like that, it's the dark room with the shaft of light across yeah. her eyes. Oh, I'm getting yeah. so oh, choked I know. up. I know. And she's Slide. so... Women getting angry on screen. <laughs> it makes me so upset. Yeah, and Betty sitting uncomfortably knowing that this is all about this piece that she's written. Yeah, and she, it's, you know, a girdle to set you free. What does, what that, does that mean? mean? <laughs> she's so angry. And she says, I didn't realise that by demanding excellence, yeah. I was, what was it? And and then it is. I was, you know, challenging, challenging the roles you were born to play. What is it, Betty? The roles you were born to play. But it's the same thing she says to the head teacher when she goes in for that meeting and is like, yeah. you know, they're talking about corsets, and the the head teacher's like, well, we could all use a bit of extra support. And it's this 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 moment of, well, no, this is this is where we live. This is who we are. It's totally normal to be doing all of these things. Yeah. It's totally normal to exist inside this quite specific view of womanhood and quite specific view of what these girls are here to do. And Catherine's sort of eternal shock that she is not here to educate people who are going to grad who are going to graduate school or people who are going to become teachers or people who are going to, you know, go off and keep studying art or make art themselves, but yeah. she is essentially teaching it some sort of finishing school yeah and this is why i think as well it's important to say that the wellesley girls yes. hate this film there were a number there was a, a letter written 
and and published in the Wellesley News, the Wellesley Alumni News, that sort of acknowledged how many ex-students had been in touch with the school or had written for various newspapers or had been in touch with interviewers or, you know, ended up in media around America. Mm. All of these women who were furious that their school had been depicted in this way. And that this, that, you know, their school had been depicted as somewhere that was essentially a finishing school or essentially somewhere where women only went to then go off and marry people. And I think that needs to be heard that, that, you know, and that if, that's the story you want to tell about a school, they could have picked a fictional school to do that. I mean, so this this letter was written in January 2004. And in many ways, everyone listening to this should Google it because it it's is, long. It's long. And there, it makes a lot of very good points. Um, and I think that, yes, there's loads of sort of Essentially, it clarifies how it happened the way that it did and why it was filmed on campus without any real involvement from Mm -hmm. Wellesley as a college. Um, And the fact that they had absolutely no control over any artistic decisions made. Um, Okay, I'm going to read the first and the last paragraph. So uh, this letter is from January 2004 and it's a message from the president of Wellesley College alumni. And it starts, we've been hearing from many alumni who've been feeling pressure to defend the college and the quality of their own education against the distorted and demeaning portrayal of our alma mater in the film Mona Lisa Smile, released over the holidays in movie theatres across the country. Several alumni have asked for help from the administration in their efforts to set the record straight. And it then goes on to talk about all the steps that have been taken, all the things that they're doing now. It finishes... All, to, all of this is to the good and bolsters my confidence that the movie is unlikely to do us any lasting damage, whatever we may think of it. I do very much regret, however, the distress it has caused many alumni, and especially alumni who were students in the 50s. I'm grateful for many op-ed articles, interviews and letters to the editor through which Wellesley alumni have all across the country been speaking out to correct the historical record and standing up for our college. Thank mm. you. And it does... I think it is important to talk about that because it is yeah. devast- I, it would be devastating. Devastating! To have been there in the 50s to feel like this did not in any way reflect your education or your yeah. experience of your time at college and that something that felt to you very different from yeah. a finishing school be portrayed in a very specific way for dramatic effect must have been devastating. It must, like, you know... There's been this recent thing around the short story cat person mm. and how someone's personal anecdote was used for that story yes. and how um, disorientating the experience was for them. And um, I, I do sympathise with that, but I sympathise with this much Me more. Me too, 100%. Because then you are defending your college. You're defending where you spent four years yeah. learning about all of these things. You're constantly having to to be in a yeah. position of going, that's not, that wasn't it, that wasn't it, that wasn't what it was like. And it almost, because it's like, literally your named college, it, 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 it almost yeah. becomes part of the public record. Absolutely. That your education was worth nothing. On It was the first time I heard of Wellesley College, yeah. was watching this yeah. film. It was my first experience of that. And then I found out it was a real place. You know, yeah. it was watching I always a film. It was a stand-in for like Vassar. Me too. And I, then I also exactly put Vassar that. in the same category. Yeah, yeah, where I just went, oh, well, I assumed that they were all like that. You know, yeah. my my response to it as a teenager watching this film was, this must be a fictional college. And then 
looking it up on dial-up and figuring it out that it wasn't, you know, that it was representative, not just of, not just representative of a school, but literally using the school and its grounds. Yeah. To film this very fictionalised version. And uh, there was also this um, this news piece that was like, you know, it really wasn't that conservative a school. Nabokov taught there in the 50s, you <laughs> yeah. know? So, yeah. But I actually, I don't, don't really mind that. I get, I mean, I do, I do mind on behalf of those women, but like, things don't need to be true to feel true. No, and absolutely. And to affect that, you and to yeah. resonate, you know? Yeah. And, and it is okay to, to watch a version of these four women's stories yeah. that aren't, that aren't telling you that they're based on true women. You know, there's no, there's no yeah. claim that the four women at the centre of the story, these four young women, mm. four young students, were real people. Yeah. They are obviously fictionalised people. I feel like we've talked about this movie so much, and yet I feel like we've talked about it so little. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. We've talked around it I know. For, for an hour I, and a half. But uh, I've enjoyed it every minute. Me but, too. Like, there's also just... I just want to say the styling I think is so good. Oh, it's so beautiful. I think it's so easy to do a version of 1950s styling that's like, here is my poodle skirt, yep. you know, here's my girdle, all this kind of stuff. But they look like natural people who have wardrobes and individual senses of style. It really does. And it feels very lived in. Like you often see them half dressed, which yeah. feels very realistic. Yeah. It feels very like, of course you're not always perfectly put together. You've had a big long day and you've come back and you've undone your tie and you've undone this bit of your shirt or yeah. Giselle's walking around in a slip again because of course. Because of, oh, she's so Because if you're Maggie Gyllenhaal, of course you would. That moment when Giselle looks in the mirror and just says, do I look a little bit like her? I look like her. Just pulling on her little ponytails. I think so she's fabulous. So fit. So fit. Uh, it is, you know, that feels real. Mm. The styling feels real. They feel... Because Betty's style is very different to Joan's, very different to Giselle's, very different to Connie's. Like, they feel like people with individual senses of style rather than just, we've put them in 50s dresses. Yeah. Everyone? Yes? Yes? Good. It's like what the styling behind Little Women thought it was doing. (laughs) But it was actually, I think the costumes in that movie were mental. Yes. (laughs) They look weird. This feels like what that was going for. It's like they're wearing individual pieces that women wear and feel like whatever and and the, the bits repeat of, that you see yeah. like a cardigan again and you see it and you know you see a bit connie of an sweatshirt again. you see again. connie sweatshirt again right it does feel like connie has a real lived in life yeah you know and that's why i think it feels like a tv show it feels like a it longer does. thing than it is it feels like we spend more time with them than we do and yet i still want more i love that joan like joan and betty are the best friends and the queen bees but yes. their styling is, is like slightly different and yes joan's styling is very a like, tennis club Yes. Very athletic and streamlined and like light golden colours and whites yeah. and things. And uh, then Betty's outfits seem more based on a kind of suburban yeah. mindset, you know? And Betty's hair is very severe. Whereas Jones, although like quite helmety, yeah. is always out and curled in a different way. Like Betty's is always quite like fringe, curled over, and then hair yeah. like very, you know... When Betty, when Betty arranges the photo shoot. Oh, God. It's so sad. So sad. When she's like... It's such an Instagram Married moment. Wellesley girls need to do this. Yeah. Well, one will often hear... And she's One will often hear, like, someone basting oh, a past pot roast while quoting while, Chaucer. Yeah, doing my chemistry with the other hand. Yeah. And it just... Her husband in that... I mean, he is such a cartoon he literally has a pipe it is staggering to me that this is written by men because these women have such 
internal lives yeah. and the men are like stick figures it is like that meme of the horse <laughs> where you know you've got the the sketch of the ass that is just like uh, yeah uh, yeah and, uh, and the head of the and horse, the head of so, the horse beautiful. Is so beautifully drawn all the women in that part of the horse and all the men are just like stick figure men so true that none of them have any internal life they yeah. just they just are there to help the plot yeah and to provide what they need to provide but the women are all so richly detailed I had completely forgotten that the Italian teacher had never actually been to Italy. It's so And, it, and it's revealed like... like ten, <gasps> when she says, what an extraordinary lie. I'm like, yeah, I don't really care. I don't really care don't about care. any of this. Yeah. She's yeah, just I, devastated I, down by the lake. She dumps what him. What an extraordinary lie. It's what like, what an extraordinary lie. You know what else? He's been sleeping with all the students. Is That's this, the bitch this you should be mad about. Like, this is your lie This is your lie. I, yeah, I just hate it. mad. I don't think Catherine would get with a guy no. who slept with her students. No, I just don't believe it. Like, he is such a cad. And it's obviously yeah. so clearly not just Giselle. Yeah. Like, it's not even as if it's like, well, he fell in love with this one student and they had this, you know. It's not that. No. It's like, he's done this he every year. With he's a the hot teacher he's, at a girls' yeah, school. He's a hot teacher at a girls' school at college and he picks one every year. You know who's an unnamed character who I love and who has more internal life than any of the men? <laughs> Come on. The really rich girl. Oh my God. Where she's like, we have a Picasso. Oh the, my God. In the summer house. It's small. <laughs> she's the one who always turns the lights on. Maybe, maybe. But yeah. she's, like, she's very, she's the waspiest yes, one, basically. super waspy. And you're right, it's the Picasso. Yeah. It's very small. It's very small. No, Van Gogh. Sorry. Yes. Yes, because they're looking at sunflowers. But yeah, here's Ooh. another... In the Newport house. In the Newport house! <laughs> here's another thing. Come on. I, I hate when movies try, like, period movies, yes. they try and highlight who's the um, forward-thinking iconoclast by the fact that they respect Picasso. <laughs> it happens it so happens. much. Yep. Happens in Titanic. Yes, 100%. 100%? Oh my yeah. God, it's so nuts! Because, like, it's, it's, like, it's something Picasso. He'll never amount to anything. Something, beca- something, <laughs> something Picasso. Picasso. Surely you would remember Pablo something. Pablo That's something, how it right, works. Exactly! It's like, he'll never amount to anything. <laughs> and that's when you know that's when you know that Cal is bad there's, there's yeah because he doesn't, he doesn't like get Picasso there's like a set of references that get used over and over Freud is another one. Oh yeah it's like oh it is he's that, got his it? interesting theories yeah it's like a telegraphing really sloppily to the audience <laughs> and it's such annoying getting the audience on side as well because like yeah. um, this subversive iconoclast and you the clever audience the clever audience both know that Picasso kind of a big deal yeah. yeah Picasso continues to be a big deal even today wild wild yeah and like, the fa- yeah the fact that she's written her doctorate on the fact that Picasso will do for the 20th century what uh, Da Vinci did for yeah. the Renaissance and then it's have you ever been to the Sistine Chapel? Have you been Sistine Chapel? It's not good. No. But I do, but I do like it. Yeah, me too. It's like the same thing happens in Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. He literally says, have you ever been to the Sistine yeah. Chapel? Like, I love Americans and their view of Europe as being the sort of... Honestly. The seat of culture. And if absolutely you haven't been, that. you haven't been you, in the seat. Yeah, absolutely that. Like, if you've only read about it, no. You've no. only done this. You don't know. Yeah. I think that my, my biggest sort of hopes and predictions for the future are the thing is I always want someone to be gay it's yeah. just a thing yeah I want someone just to be gay just want someone to be gay 
just want Betty to be gay. I want Betty to move to Greenwich Betty Village to be gay. and to have a really nice life. Betty should be gay. Yeah. I just think she she could be. Yeah. I'd be quite... If, if you know, if I got a, like... There is a moment I talked as well about The Hairy Bird, mm-hmm. which I loved in the 90s, another Kirsten Dunst film. Uh, there is a moment at the end where they do that thing that I love at the end of a film where... At the credits, there is a title card for each character and what happens to them in the future. It's so mental to have a title card for their future for a fictional for a character. Fictional character, but I love it. Yeah. It is one of I my favorite things because and I always I love, cry. Me too, and I love imagining how you get there. I love yeah. the journey. Yeah. And one of those characters comes out as a lesbian in an interview with Barbara Walters in the nine in like the nineties, oh, wow. and it's gorgeous. And it was so great. I remember watching that in the 90s and being like, oh, that's such a good ending for her. And I want a title card that says that Betty goes to London. Uh, sorry, goes to Greenwich Village. Yeah. London. I'm doing it by myself, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> she goes to Greenwich Village and lives with Giselle. And Giselle has a great time. And Betty has a great time. And she falls in love with a woman. Oh, that's what I want for her. So good. She just seems so miserable married to a man. I know it was mostly about him, but she just seemed mm. generally quite miserable to yeah, be married I, to a man. I feel like... Okay, here's what I feel like is the, the subtext of um, Betty's relationship. It's like, it's kind of inferred that their sex life isn't working out. Oh, absolutely. I think it's because she hates the touch of a man. Yeah, and obviously. the last virgin bride. They didn't sleep together before the wedding. She, exactly. She you know, went into it having never done it before. And she finds it like shocking and vulgar and weird yeah. and uncomfortable absolutely. and strange. And mm-hmm. he's like, well, I'm not going to waste my time trying to thaw this iceberg. Nope. So I'm going to go and have an affair with this woman from work who's great. Yeah, exactly. One and, of she, our clients. And, and she's sort of like, oh, I guess I hate sex. Yeah. And then she has it off yep with some hot Greenwich hot Village Greenwich Village lesbian, lesbian of which there were many yeah yeah I mean she's going to the right place is all I'm gonna say love it that is what I want for this yeah and I want you know I think Connie will have a lovely time with Desi Desi <laughs> Charlie I believe oh my god Fucking Betty just lying to Connie. Oh my god. Because just Betty bullies Connie throughout the movie. But yeah. She, the first time she actually fucking lies to her. When says, they're at the pool. Yeah. And she says... They're smoking at the pool. Smoking at the pool. That must smell disgusting. It must be absolutely... I honestly, in a film where people smoke all the time, I cannot help but think, please go outside. You're, the, this yeah. whole building And I love to smoke freak. everywhere. Sure. I, I love to smoke... <laughs> But people smoking in a pool. pool. When I'm like even slightly moist from the rain smoking, like it's where like, are you putting the cigarette? Like, are you just stubbing it out stubbing by the side the, of the pool? Oh. But anyway. she says basically Charlie's been promised. She, yeah, to yeah, yeah, yeah. He's where's somebody's pin? Yeah. Um and. And poor Connie is just devastated because they're just a lie. The Cape and, and Betty's like, you take women to the Cape if you want to hide them, and and you are somebody who would be hidden. Yeah. You know, you are somebody who could only be in a relationship with somebody if they're hiding you. Nobody really likes you. Yeah. It's only because you're willing to put out. Oh. So he's going to take you away for a weekend and sleep with you, but he doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't want to show you off. Yeah. Oh. What a heartbreaking thing. Anyway, so I hope that he and Connie have a really nice time together. Yeah. Fine. Okay. Here's the dark one. Come on. Joan. Here's what I think happened to Joan. I think she does regret not going to... I think she regrets not going to Yale. <laughs> I think, I think she, she be- does regret it. I really do. Yeah. And I think she becomes one of these like 50s housewife stereotypes where it's like, 
Oh, like Joan's feeling very anxious, so yeah. I've, t- I've taken her to a doctor, and he's given her some pills. Some pills. Total opioid addiction. Yeah. But then I think she comes out of it in like the late sixties and becomes like a ceramicist. Well, I want to see Joan in Miss America, like the the series from a couple of years ago with. Do you watch it, Kate Blanchett? And um, no. it was it was about the seventies and the sort of sexual revolution and yeah. um, Jermaine Greer and like a, you know a whole. It's not Jermaine Greer. I'm fucking it up. I'm going to talk about this again. Uh, I want, I want to see Joan. Twenty years down the line, yeah. regretting it and going back, like yeah. and going and studying somewhere because she's super young. You know, it's not too late. She could regret it and change her mind, and she might have a quite sad opioid addiction in the <laughs> late fifties. But maybe she makes it through it, and in the sixties, she decides. That once her kids are in school, because her kids will be in school by the, you know, yeah, that's true. That's true. It doesn't have to be totally dark. Doesn't have to be totally dark. Life is long. Life is long. Life is long, and it's important to remember. Yeah, life is long, and I think, but I I love a happy ending, so I just want that for Joan. But also, I think it's very realistic that she will absolutely regret not going to Yale. Yeah. And fifteen years later, she wouldn't get into Yale. She'd go to another law school. Oh. But. I do think that she and Tommy make it stay work. quite happy. Yeah. Yeah. I think they have some rough years with the old yeah, yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah. For sure. That's going to be tough. I think Giselle writes I a sex book. I think he sticks by her side. Oh, my God. Giselle, Giselle writes a sex writes book. Writes a sex book. Yeah. 100%. I think it's like one of those like 60s books like, oh, <laughs> Bedroom Tales yes! from Mrs. X. Yes. And like, yeah, oh. fucks a Kennedy, all that. Absolutely. Stays unmarried. Has yeah. an amazing time. Amazing. Shows up at every one of the good parties that was written about in the late twentieth century. Yeah, like she just happens to be and becomes in a, a person who's like quoted biographies all the time. Absolutely, like she was there. And she was there. Yeah, she knows. She saw it. Yeah, and continues to dress like an absolute babe. Oh my god, her outfits are incredible. I mean, I'm so obsessed with her in this film that it made me want to smoke. I've never smoked a cigarette. And it made me want to smoke because I was like, just want to be leaning casually, comfortably out of a window. I'm, yeah. I, I will never look like Maggie Gyllenhaal. No. We do not have the same build. But there is something no one about like her like yeah. angled, angular sort of elegance in it yeah. where she her limbs feel too long for her body but she know, only she knows how to deal with them. Yeah. And she is just beautiful in the whole thing. So, so I want to read her sex book and go that to mo- her book events. The moment where she's like with the old married guy oh my and he God. says, do you talk to your father like, your father <laughs> like that? <laughs> Like, does your father, your father know, know you're here? Talk like that. Yeah. And she says, does your wife know? <laughs> oh, It's so is. gross, but... It's so gross, but she... I responded. Yeah, yeah, me too. Yeah. She's having a great time. She's having a great time. Oh, okay. We've been talking for a long time. Yes. Is there anything think. else we'd like to say about this movie that we love and yet find many problems with? <laughs> I just think that people should watch it. And I think every woman I've talked to who I've you know, said I'm coming to talk to you about this film has been like, oh, Mona Lisa Smile, I quite love that film. And yeah. like almost as if it's with a level of shame because it's shaming to love a movie that has yeah. a 34% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's shaming to love a movie that ends with a bicycle scene yeah. of them all riding after her. It's pretty shaming for that scene to almost make you cry. Right. That's not great. So <laughs> it doesn't speak well. When I was me. watching it last night, Gavin came in in the literally in the last two minutes <laughs> yeah. and he hadn't seen the entire movie. <laughs> And the and all he heard was that. So he saw that scene. All he yeah. heard was Kirsten Dunst's like fucking voiceover saying, "Not all who wander <laughs> are aimless." Aimless. 
And he, and he just went, ah! <laughs> and I, I literally craned my head around and I went, shut, shut up! up. <laughs> You've not been here. You don't know. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know. You don't know. Yeah. Oh. So I want to say to women, embrace, the, and not everything has to mean something. Yeah. Like, enjoy And everything film. has to be good all the way through no, for it to be important and mean something. Absolutely that. And it meaning something doesn't have to mean that it means it perfectly or it yeah. tells it perfectly oh. or it checks out or it stops being problematic or it speaks to everything and includes every voice and every version of the conversation. It can still mean something if it's a little bit dated yeah. or a bit. Yeah. Here, here. Here, here. If it means something to us, it means something. And they yes, mean something does. to me. <laughs> Kate Young, you're an author of uh, several cookbooks. Which one would you like to promote here? I am. <laughs> I have written numerous cookbooks. I have written three at this point. Yes. Um, I write a series of cookbooks about where I recreate food in literature. And so the last one that came out was my Christmas book last year. If you missed it then, it will be a pleasure from November onwards. So maybe get it so that you've got it ready for then. It is called A Little Library Christmas. It is small and red, like Mal's book, I guess. Mal's <laughs> book! A little red book. A little red book. Is that, is that what the advertising, the marketing There's literally with? what yeah. we went with. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it is a small red book uh, with a bunch of Christmassy recipes in it, but also a lot of essays about how lonely and tricky Christmas can be and how full of grief sometimes and also all of the best episodes of Christmas television. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, it's good fun. Thank you, Kate, for coming on today. Thank you. This has been Sentimental Garbage and I've been Caroline O'Donoghue. You can follow me on Twitter at Zaraline, that's C-Z-A-R-O-L-I-N-E or email me about the podcast at sentimentalpod at gmail.com. This has been a Justice for Dumb Women podcast. Thank you to Harry Harris for the jingle, Gavin Day for the artwork, and Hannah Varro for the mixing. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.